Today's reading is Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out for him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she is 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Matt. Well, good evening. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you, good to have you all here this week. Hope you enjoyed uh, the beautiful weather we've had this weekend, and it is good to be um, with you again. Uh, if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my um, sincere privilege to be able to open the word with you and for you in this evening. If you've been with us uh, for the past several months, really, uh, despite having a several month break, if you've been with us since January, let's put it that way, uh, you know that we've been working our way through the book of Mark. Uh, and we've talked at length about the idea that one of Mark's purposes, in fact, his primary purpose as the writer of what has come to be known as the first gospel, was to put Jesus Christ in front of you in a way where you couldn't deny the reality both of his existence and his person. 
that he wanted you to so have a picture of who Jesus Christ is that you would not be able to walk away unchanged. And so the stories that Mark shares with us through his book uh, are, are stories that are unbelievable to us. I mean, for those of us who grew up in or around the church, these are stories that are largely familiar. They're probably stories that you know well. Uh, the stories that we're going to talk about tonight uh, are ones in particular that you may have seen on a flannel graph in a, in a junior church um, room. But, but, but these stories, because of their familiarity, have a tendency to lose their potency. And my hope is that as we look at this passage this evening, you'll be struck afresh and anew by the power of Jesus Christ. In chapter five, there are four stories that are given to us. And the purpose of these four stories is really to illustrate for us that Jesus Christ has power over everything. That there is nothing in the universe that is outside of his control, his power, his influence, his word, that everything that exists ultimately answers to him. And so if you were with us two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus Christ's power over creation, that a massive storm had risen up over the Sea of Galilee, and just with the speaking of words, Jesus Christ causes everything to stop. That there is nothing in nature that is outside of his control. If you were with us last week, as Dave talked about the story of the demoniac of Gennesaret, uh, the, the story of, of a realization where Jesus Christ has power over everything spiritual, that this demon-possessed man who had so many demons possessing him that when the demon responded to Jesus by giving his name, he said, we are legion. I mean, those words pulled apart from the rest of the text are terrifying to the human ear. And yet with a simple command of Christ, those demons are cast out. We find the demons begging Jesus not to destroy them on the spot. And finally, the, the two stories, one of which we'll begin to cover this evening, the final two stories talk about Jesus Christ's power over sickness and over death. So this is really going to be one sermon uh, in two parts, this week and next week. Um, but I want to give just a little bit of background as to why we're approaching it this way. If you, if you were paying attention um, during the reading of Scripture as Matt read that for us, what you noticed is that there is a primary story, which is uh, the story of this man whose daughter is about to die. She's very sick, not doing well, and he comes to Jesus and asks for help. And then there's the secondary story within it, this woman with the issue of blood. That's the primary story that we're going to talk about this evening. But I think these two stories wrapped into one really reveal two different aspects of the nature and character of Christ, and they have different applications for us. So we're going to split those up over this week and next. But as we come into this text, we find Jesus coming back across the Sea of Galilee. If you remember back to two weeks ago, Jesus had finished the teaching of the parables. He was tired, he was exhausted, and he turns to the disciples and said, let us cross to the other side. Now, just for context to understand how this worked, one side of the Sea of Galilee was primarily occupied by Jews. The, the synagogues were there, the Jewish people had gathered there, it was there mainland and across the sea was primarily a Gentile land. That's where we found the demon-possessed man that we talked about last week. And, and one of the things that Dave brought out of that story is that Jesus's compassion comes through just as much as his power does, that Jesus goes all the way across the Sea of Galilee just to ultimately reach this one man. As the story picks up this evening in chapter 5, verse 21, we find that Jesus has crossed back over to the Jewish side of the sea. He's begun 
He's begun with the intention of teaching and preaching once again. And and during the time that he was away, the crowds have continued to grow. His fame has continued to spread. People are hearing more and more about this person, Jesus Christ, and the amazing miracles that he performs, the authority with which he teaches, the gospel that was unlike anybody else that they had ever heard. So as more people are gathering to listen to him, he's approached by two people in particular, people who, as we'll discover next week, couldn't have been more different. The first was this man named Jairus, a religious leader in the synagogue, and the second, interestingly, is an unnamed woman. A woman who is an outcast in her community. And we'll pick up the story in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and Seeing him, he, that is Jairus, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. I'll stop there for just a second. We'll talk about this in in depth next week, but I just want you to see again the compassion of Jesus Christ. He's surrounded by a massive group of people. This one man comes to him and says, You have to come see my daughter. She's on death's door. If she... If she doesn't have some sort of intervention, that's it. And Jesus drops everything to pursue her. But then notice what happens in the verse immediately following. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who'd suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So imagine this, if you will. Jesus is making his way to help Jairus, and as they're on their way, a massive crowd is following him. And just to try to bring this into a little bit of perspective, I think we actually need to consider what this crowd looked like. So recently, I don't don't know if any of you watched this, but recently ESPN had a special called The Last Dance. It was about the uh, the Michael Jordan era Bulls and um, their various championship runs and kind of all the inner machinations of what was going on in the Bulls franchise and organization and fanhood and all those kinds of things. Fascinating if you're interested in watching that sort of thing. But one of the things that was just, just unmistakable as you watched it was to see people's reaction as they saw Michael Jordan for the first time. Seemingly, it didn't matter where he went, into what portion of the United States or around the world that he went, there were massive crowds of people gathering all around him. So as a kid who grew up in Milwaukee, traditionally not fans of Chicago teams, I grew up in the 90s as a Michael Jordan fan. Anyone else? All right, three of us. Great. Glad to see that. Thanks, guys. But you couldn't help be a fan of him. He was just such an amazing player, just such an amazing figure. And so what you'd see is as he went all around the world, people who couldn't speak a word of English knew the words Michael Jordan. And so as he's trying to get from one place to another, he's got all kinds of handlers who are trying to push people away and make space for him to get through. And even even with all of those bodyguards and all of those handlers, he's having to move incredibly slowly from one point to another. That's the kind of thing that's happening here to Jesus. The crowds are so massive and so many people are pressing in on him and so many people are bumping up against him and touching him, just wanting to get a glimpse of him, wanting him to kiss their baby or shake their hand or or heal them. They just want to see him for a moment. They want to be able to tell their kids, I saw Jesus. 
And as they're on their way, you can imagine what this mob looked like. And among this mob is one poor woman. I'm going to try to imagine her plight. Try to imagine what life would have looked like for her. I mean, the Bible says that she had an, an issue or a discharge, depending on your translation, of blood. But for 12 years, this woman had experienced the physical discomfort and pain and the psychological anguish of having an undiagnosed and untreatable life-altering disease. She had tried everything to figure out what was wrong. She'd seen doctors, and she'd sought out the best treatment that she could afford, but she was unable to find anyone who could help her. In fact, Mark goes so far as to say she had suffered much under many physicians for years. In other words, not only were the, the doctors and the treatments actually aiding her in recovery, but in some cases, the treatments themselves that she was experiencing had proven to be more painful than the disease itself. Imagine her frustration. Imagine her anger. Potentially at God. Potentially at others in her community, certainly with the doctors from whom she tried to find help. And Mark tells us that by the point she reaches here, she was broke. She had no more money and nowhere left to turn. She was nearly hopeless. And as if all of that wasn't enough, all of the physical pain and all of the discomfort and all of the frustration and all of the psychological anguish that she certainly experienced, there's also a cultural subtext to the story. Because within Judaism, there were very stringent and strict laws that applied to a woman with a condition like hers. And if you want to read very in-depth details as to what those stringent requirements and conditions were, you can read Leviticus 15 and Leviticus 22. But I'm going to read for you Numbers chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, because it addresses someone with her particular condition and the way that the Jews were supposed to interact with such a person. It says this in Numbers 5, the Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike, send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. See, in Judaism, a discharge of blood made you ceremonially unclean. It meant that you weren't able to go to the synagogue to worship, which meant that you couldn't participate in all of the, all of the functions that would happen at temple. If you were married, it certainly affected your intimacy. And if you were ceremonially unclean, it also meant that no one in the community was supposed to touch you. So imagine for 12 years, never being able to attend a service, never being able to be with your spouse if this woman is married, never even being able to be touched by anyone around you. Imagine the isolation. For 12 years, 
her identity had been stripped and she was isolated. The anguish, the physical pain, the psychological distress, the cultural shame that this woman felt. And here she's thinking, this is my last shot. If I can just reach Jesus, if he can just lay hands on me, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I can be healed. Here's what I want you to see through this. We don't know anything about this woman's background. We don't know, uh, we're not told whether or not she was educated. We're not told if she loved God or not. We're not told if she had good theology or not. But what she knew was Jesus could help. So hear this. Theology is important. It's vital, in fact. And your behavior is important. And your understanding of the Bible is important. But the hope that Christianity offers the world is not first a philosophy or a behavioral structure or even a system of belief. The hope that Christianity offers the world is Jesus himself. And in the words of one pastor, if you take as much of you as you understand to as much of Jesus as you understand, he will not disappoint you. And I've talked to so many people over the years who say things like, well, I want to believe or I, I love that other people can believe. I wish I was a person of faith. I wish I had that kind of faith. I wish I had the kind of faith that you have. I'm just not really wired that way. It's not really my thing. And you may be sitting here tonight as someone who is unsure of what all to believe. What do I believe about the Bible? And what do I believe about this? How much of this do I believe? But maybe you're wondering if maybe Jesus can help you. My hope is that you would understand what this woman understood. That the object of your faith is infinitely more important than the amount of your faith. And the invitation of this text is run to him and just see what he will do in your life. That's the courage that this woman displays. She risks the dirty looks and the criticizing comments of those that were gathered. She begins to push her way through the crowd and no doubt there were some there that day who knew who this woman was. They knew the condition she had. They knew that she was supposed to be outside of the city, away from the people. They knew that she was not supposed to be near crowds. They knew that she was certainly not supposed to be touching them. And one thing that they knew certainly above everything else is that she was not to be touching a holy man, a rabbi, a teacher. But she shows this tremendous courage. She pushes through the crowd. She finally reaches Jesus. She stretches out his hand, her hand to touch his sleeve. And look what happens in verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out of him. See, what all of the doctors and all of those who were treating her and all of the money could not accomplish for her was accomplished instantly through Jesus Christ. But notice, there was a cost. Jesus perceived that power had gone out of him. See, when we think about Jesus, it's so easy for us to think about Jesus as some sort of a superhero. 
And what I mean by that is like, if you've ever watched one of the Superman movies, I mean, apart from kryptonite or perhaps a Kryptonian who comes to fight him on earth, there is very, very little that slows Superman down. He never really shows himself to be tired. He never demonstrates that he's worn out. He just does all of these things and just keeps going in stride. And we have a tendency to think about Jesus the same way, that he is the stoic superhero, that nothing ever distracts, that he never gets tired that he never feels any of it, that he has this un- inexhaustible well of power. But listen to how the Apostle Paul describes Jesus in earthly form. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. In other words, when Jesus was on earth in human form, he emptied himself of his own divine power. So then why does he say that he felt power leave him? Because Jesus relied fully on the power of the Holy Spirit. If you remember back to the beginning of our study in the book of Mark, at Jesus' baptism, there's this beautiful picture where as Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately what happens, according to Mark, is that the Holy Spirit himself drives Jesus into the wilderness, directs him, leads him to go into the wilderness. And all throughout the Gospels, we find this very unique language about the person of Jesus Christ, where he's referenced as being filled with the the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 4 verse 1. Having the power of the Lord. Luke chapter 5 verse 17. Preaching with the power of the Spirit. Luke chapter 4 verse 14. Praying through the power of the Spirit. Luke chapter 10 verse 21. In other words, Jesus' whole earthly ministry was accomplished through his dependence on the Holy Spirit. And Jesus grew physically and emotionally tired in his ministry, just as you and I do. And this is one of those special verses that gives us a a unique insight, not just into Jesus' identity as God, but also into his identity as man. And it reminds us that everything Jesus did, listen to this, everything he did cost him. Look where it picks up in verse 30. Jesus immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And you can imagine the disciples questioning. You see the crowd pressing around you, right? And yet you say, who touched me? They're sarcastic in their response to Jesus. Not a good idea. Verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. So Jesus senses the power has gone out of him. He turns to see what happened. He asks the disciples who touched him and they're flummoxed. People have been touching him nonstop ever since he got off the boat. But as we've talked about, there is a difference between proximity to Jesus and relationship with Jesus. So what was the difference between the woman and the crowd? Many had touched him, but only she had connected with him. Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. And she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. In fear and trembling. 
I mean, this woman doesn't know what's going to come next. You can imagine that perhaps her experience with any other religious leader that she'd encountered since she'd had this diagnosis had been, had been marked by shame and condemnation. Because in this culture, to have a disease like this was often viewed not only as a physical ailment, but actually as a punishment from God. Perhaps religious leaders had, had condemned her and told her to go away. She comes with fear before Jesus falls to her face. And look what Jesus says in verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The heart of Jesus in this moment puts into stark relief something that we've seen for the last several weeks. If you remember, when the disciples came to Jesus during the storm, do you remember how they approached him and asked for help? They said, Master, don't you even care that we're dying? They came in frustration and anger. And once he calmed the sea, they were filled with great fear. See, they had forgotten relationship. They had forgotten his compassion. And last week, as Dave talked about how Jesus dealt with the demoniac, the people who witnessed this exorcism were filled with terror and asked Jesus to leave. But who was the one person who interacted with Jesus in a positive manner after that? It was the demon-possessed man. Do you remember? He came back and he said, can I go with you? Can't I be with you? See, the power of God separated from relationship with God is a frightening thing. But when you experience the compassion of Christ, you begin to trust in his power. And look at the tenderness that's on display here. Daughter, your faith has made you well. He calls her daughter. How amazing must it have been for her to hear that word come out of Jesus' mouth. For this woman who likely hadn't had contact with any other human for 12 years, who had experienced nothing other than the condemning derision of others, to hear this teacher, this rabbi, call her daughter. And he doesn't stop there. He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. See, what was the difference that day between the woman and the crowd, it was her faith. See, Jesus wasn't a talisman who, when touched, gave you your deepest desire. That's a genie. That's not a God. But no, Jesus says, your faith has healed you. That what she experienced was a result of having placed her faith in the only person capable of of bearing it. And in declaring this publicly, Jesus was not only confirming her healing, and he was not only affirming her as a person, but he was also declaring, uh, he was declaring a message to everyone else who was gathered that day. He was announcing to them that this woman was ceremonially clean. 
that she was fit to re-enter society, that she was fit to be loved and interacted with and cared for again, that she was free to worship freely again. He was demonstrating in a real and powerful and personal way what he had declared in chapter 4 about the kingdom of God, that the seed of the gospel had rooted deeply in her heart. And the miracle that Jesus accomplished in giving this woman peace in verse 34 is even greater than the one that he accomplished in giving her healing in verse 29. And what he did for the woman in this story is a microcosm of what he was going to do on the cross. See, just as Jesus felt the physical cost of bringing peace and healing to this woman, He was later going to give himself for your salvation. I mean, this woman had felt the pain of physical suffering for 12 long years. But on the cross, Jesus experienced physical suffering that you and I can't even imagine. She had experienced the psychological pain of ostracization But on the cross, Jesus was truly isolated. So much so that as he hung on the cross with the guilt and the shame of the world on his body, God the Father turned his back on the Son. Do you remember what Jesus cried out? Eloi, Eloi, lambda sabachthani. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Divine isolation on the cross. To experience the lack of the presence of God, not just friends and loved ones, not just 12 years of physical distance, but to experience the lack of the presence of God himself is to experience the reality of what hell is. Separation. When Jesus experienced it on your behalf. See, Jesus was forsaken by his father so that he could call this woman daughter. And he extends the very same invitation to you today. That Jesus gave up his power and his glory and his very life to bring you into his family and to give you new life, abundant and free. Brother and sister, would you see him today in both his power and his compassion? Because to lose either of those things is to lose the whole of who Christ is. It's to reduce him to a spiritual force on one hand, nothing more than a movement or a sense capable of great displays, or it's to reduce him to merely a friend. But to combine the power and the compassion of Jesus Christ is to get a sense of the eternal God of the universe who did all of this for you. 
And his invitation to you today is that as you see his power and sense his compassion, that you would experience a whole new peace. See, the peace that she experienced in being healed was just the beginning of what this woman was going to experience in her life. Because from that day forward, everything was different. Not only physically, but spiritually as well. And that is the invitation that he extends to you. Would we be faithful in responding? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the story of one woman's simple and profound faith. God, we thank you for your example in this passage that Jesus, as no respecter of persons, didn't leave her behind to go with this man who was a religious leader, but that he stopped what he was doing and he cared for this woman who truly was the least among them. We thank you for the demonstration it is, not only that you are aware of the situations in which we find ourselves and the pain and the discomfort and the agony that we may be experiencing, but that you care enough to actually do something about it. God, we thank you that ultimately your care for this woman didn't just stop with her physical healing, but that you invited her into your family and that Jesus made the way for her to enter it. God, would we trust you with that sort of faith, realizing that it's not the amount of our faith that makes the difference, it is the object of our faith. Would we put our whole and entire trust solely in Jesus Christ? And God, for those who are here today who may be wondering or wrestling with these notions, God, would you remind them that you don't turn away when people reach out in need, but that you are faithful and compassionate and powerful. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.